The snow is falling, the nights come early, and you're listening to Burning Rock Radio. Burning Rock Radio is the ongoing story of Ivy Romeo's search for her friend Sam. If you're new to the podcast, we suggest that you listen from the beginning. Chapter 2. Brush the Summer By. January 2002. Our story really begins exactly where you might expect it to begin. With a bunch of stupid grad students playing scary games on the beach. The year was 2002, and we had all just survived a couple pretty major events. The latest in a long line of world-changing apocalypses stretching infinitely into both the future and the past. I guess the relief of moving forward had created an air of summer never ends, glad to be alive vibes in the little coastal town of Burning Rock, Washington. And though I wasn't an optimist by nature, I was doing my best to play along. The night after I met Sam and saw that thing in the library... I got home about my usual time of 4.15. I dropped my keys onto the little catch-all table inside our apartment door. They hit the tile with a clink and a crash, and I winced, realizing that I should probably be quieter. It was Friday night, and while I wasn't worried about being up early, I didn't know about Lana. I wasn't used to sharing a confined space with non-familial roommates, but I had to imagine that Lana was probably asleep like usual and wouldn't be happy if I woke her up at this hour. I inched the deadbolt into place, careful to avoid excess scraping sounds or awkward creaks of the doorknob. Living with other people is weird. Knowing myself, I knew I wasn't going to be able to sleep for at least another half hour or so. I couldn't go straight from yammering away on the radio to deep and meaningful and fulfilling slumber in the span of 30 minutes. I learned that my first week in the studio. Instead, I headed for the kitchen, thinking I might grab a snack or something. On the way, I had to pass by Lana's room. Her door was cracked open, which was strange. Lana was easily one of the most private people I'd ever met. I mean that both in terms of emotional things, like talking through problems, and physical things, like leaving her door open. The open door was uncommon, but I chose to ignore it. Didn't really seem like my business. I grabbed a sleeve of mint chocolate cookies from the kitchen and walked back toward my room, munching straight out of the plastic. I passed Lana's room again and noticed that her fan was off. I couldn't hear it running and she was obsessive about turning that thing on before she went to sleep. Most days, she left it running well into the afternoon. Maybe something was wrong. I should check and make sure everything was okay, I guess. Or maybe I should just let her deal with her own trouble. I didn't want to risk her wrath by intruding where I wasn't needed. After pausing in the hall for a moment, though, I pushed the door open a couple inches and leaned inside. Her bed was a wild mess of sheets, tangled and flowing in every direction, but she wasn't in it. Interesting. I went back to the kitchen and pulled out my cell phone to call Lana. If we had been back in Seattle, it wouldn't have been so surprising to find her missing. There are things in Seattle that stay open all night, after all. Here in Burning Rock, your options are severely limited. 
There is an all-night gas station from what I've heard, but Lana doesn't strike me as the hot case corndog type. Something buzzed on the countertop, and I looked over to see the blue light of a screen. I moved a plate of scones and a whole pile of schoolwork out of the way, and eventually found Lana's little cell phone vibrating beneath a piece of cardboard of some kind. I was equal parts worried and annoyed now. Why would she leave her phone here? I stepped closer to the counter and went to reach for her phone, only to realize that the little cardboard piece on top of it was actually an envelope, and the envelope had my name on it. I frowned. It wasn't mail. It didn't have a stamp, or a return address, or my address for that matter. It was just a little gray envelope with Ivy written across it in big swooping letters. I peeled back a corner and slid my finger along the seam. It was thick and heavy, like some sort of birthday card envelope. My birthday wasn't until the day before Halloween, and this was January. So I was just about as far away from my birthday as I could get, in both directions. At first I thought the envelope was empty. The actual piece of paper was much too small for the container. I fished it out and held it up to the light from the kitchen window. The note was simple. It said, Ivy, meet us at Burning Rock at 4.30. Leave your phone at home. Signed, Lana. I turned the card over, hoping there would be something on the other side. There wasn't. I looked at my watch. It was 4.15, which meant that I still had a couple of minutes to agree to her terms if I chose to do so. Burning Rock, the giant sea stack the town was named after, was located just down the street and a few yards out into the ocean. It would be easy to make it in time. The problem was, I didn't really want to go. I wanted to go to sleep and avoid the possibility of singing Disney songs on a guitar around a campfire. Socializing after midnight was just a couple steps below death on my anti-priority list. That being said there were other things to consider. I was already the weird roommate, the one who stays out until four in the morning in a town where nobody stays out past nine. Though I would have fit in well in other college towns, things were a little bit different here. I had lived here for a month now and had yet to meaningfully connect with Lana. It wasn't for a lack of trying on Lana's part. She had invited me to three or five really terrible-sounding black-and-white movies at the local drive-in. If there's one thing I hate more than singing at bonfires, it's movies that are older than I am. I like to think there was a reason I was born in the early 80s. All things considered, this felt like kind of a do-or-die moment. The kind of thing that might tip the scales in one direction or the other in terms of social cred and living here peacefully for the next two years. So I zipped my coat back up and took a scone from underneath the plastic wrap. If I was going to socialize, I at least needed a snack to get me through it. I shoved my phone into my jeans pocket. Lana may have convinced me to head down to the beach in the middle of January, but I definitely wasn't going to leave my phone here. She can't have it all. A full moon hung overhead as I left my apartment building and headed down one of the side streets toward the beach. Out here, it was common for the roads to simply disappear underneath the sand instead of coming to an official end. For some reason, I like to imagine that burning rock roads stretch out into the sand and the ocean for miles, perhaps converging on some underwater city. I don't know why I like to think of it like that, but I do. 
My mom used to tell me I had an overactive imagination. She might have been very right. I could already see Burning Rock in the distance, jutting out above the waves and the seagrass and the rolling silver sand dunes. It's a strange thing, hulking, monstrous, obliterating part of the night sky. But there's something noble and beautiful about it as well. There are stories about the sea caves inside of it, but people aren't allowed to walk out there anymore. There were signs everywhere. Signs that told us to stay off the rocks. Signs that told us not to feed the seagulls. All kinds of signs. Objectively, I knew the risk of getting caught inside the rock at high tide outweighed the fun of exploring it. But I had a feeling that logic wouldn't stop me forever. The pavement turned to sand beneath my feet as I left the town behind and headed out into the forest of seagrass. In places, it was almost as tall as I was. The hills made it hard to see very far from this point, and so even though I was nearing the beach, I couldn't see any sign of my roommate. It wasn't until I reached the top of the bluff and started down the other side that I saw the bonfire, perfectly framed by the silhouette of burning rock. A log must have settled, because as I walked toward the fire, I saw a bright explosion of sparks shoot up into the night sky. They scattered and died, and were immediately followed by another puff of sparks and smoke. At first I didn't even see the people surrounding the fire. They were all dressed in black from the ground up, except for one guy who appeared to have some lighter patches on his sleeve. They weren't moving, and they blended in really well to the dark backdrop of burning rock. As I got closer, though, I realized that there were probably about ten people out there. I had expected it to be Lana and maybe one or two others. Maybe this wasn't my group at all. I wished there was a way I could tell for sure without just walking up to them and making it awkward. Hey, excuse me, do I know any of you? That wasn't going to work. Still, since Lana had insisted on leaving her cell phone on the counter, I didn't seem to have many options. The group didn't move at all as I approached. In fact, there was something very statuesque about them. In a different context, I might have assumed they were mannequins or something. I shivered in the frigidity of a January on the Oregon coast. Maybe my new roommate was evil. That might explain a few things. The group remained motionless, except for the fact that the winter wind created ripples in their clothing. They had to be cold, too. I couldn't imagine that bonfire was really putting off that much heat. There were no visible guitars, and nobody was singing yet. As a matter of fact, they weren't even talking. What was this? What was I walking into? I realized almost too late that I couldn't see any of their faces. I really was going to have to practically stand in the middle of them if I wanted to positively ID anyone. So awkward. I should have just gone to bed. No one moved as I reached the group. No one acknowledged that I was there. Nobody even looked at me. A familiar voice whispered in my mind, This is creepy. Maybe you should just get out of here. What if this is a cult? Are there beach cults? I pushed the thought down. Lana was standing on the other end of the circle. Hey, I said, breaking the dead silence. The only response was the crackle of fire as it let loose another burst of sparks. Then Lana put her finger to her lips and gestured for me to be quiet. My heart sped up. What was this? Maybe I should be worried after all. 
Maybe it really was a cult. Mom used to tell stories about cults. I think it was mostly in the same vein as old Irish women who told their grandkids stories about the fair folk. Mostly mom was just trying to keep me out of the woods. Somehow, though, all those stories about blood sacrifices and charismatic leaders came rushing back to me now. I looked around the circle again, and I guess I was kind of relieved to see Sam standing there. He was the one who had the white patches on his sleeves. And those white patches were there because the hoodie he was wearing looked like it was intended to replicate a bowl of Spumoni ice cream. It had three large, color-blocked, horizontal stripes. The shoulders were chocolate brown, the chest was pink with spots like cherries, and the waist was green with shards of pistachio. His left sleeve said Spumoni. His outfit was just ridiculous enough that it made me think he couldn't be an entirely serious person. And I think that cult people are always entirely serious. Still, I couldn't be sure. People surprise you. Even the people you think you know. And I didn't know any of these people. Not really. Are you guys going to kill me? I asked. Lana glared at me, but Sam smirked, and that made me feel better. The man next to me moved. I glanced up at him, though I was a little nervous too. He didn't look back, but he did reach into his pocket and pull out a slip of paper. He handed it to me. I took it, angry to find that my hands were shaking with cold and adrenaline. I unfolded the slip of paper and read it. It simply said, we're going to play a game. October 2007. A bright white fence stands boldly against the backdrop of the sunset. It's weather-worn and leaning toward the shore, and I can see the gray wood beginning to creep up the posts where the paint has flaked away. It's been here longer than me, and I hope that it will be here long after I'm gone. A few yards down the fence line, there's a gate. It opens up onto the beach, and I like to imagine that if you walk through it at just the right time, when the moon is in the right place in the sky, you'll step through into a totally different world. One populated by all the things you did right in your life, instead of the things you regret. In my imagination, Sam is still standing on the other side of that gate. He's looking out at the water, and I can't see his face, but I know he's smiling. I know he's smiling because after all these years, I finally admitted to myself that we always laughed and smiled when we were in the same place. It doesn't mean anything except for what it is. It's just one of the hundreds of little facts that holds me here in this place years after he disappeared. I still dream about that fence all the time, ever since the first time I saw it. Sometimes I think I dreamed about it before I saw it. I can't remember for sure. Sometimes I think it's the thing that led me to Burning Rock in the first place. Thank you for listening to Burning Rock Radio. Visit us at www.burningrockradio.com and follow us on Instagram at Burning Rock Radio. As always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews. And Sam, 
if you're out there, we all miss you and hope to see you soon. <laughs>